1: This is Cresta in the Afternoon
2: Good afternoon and welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon We've got a pretty exciting lineup today And as you can hear, I am not Al Cresta, Al is still away on business Continue to pray for all the good work we do here at Ave Maria Radio and EWTN As we propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth as I mentioned earlier, we've got an intriguing lineup. In the first part of this hour, we'll be talking with the, the renowned Joseph, Joseph Pierce, Joe Pierce, with whom we discuss what it means to say that God is not only reasonable, but is reason itself. And we draw from the principles of Pope Benedict XVI in his renowned Regensburg Address. And then from there... We move forth to a conversation of a different level. We'll be talking to two brothers who are part of an effort to bring about a revitalization in the world of arts, combining the truths of the faith in the, the in the work of arts. We'll be talking about music and literature and and dance, and poetry, and the like. And all of these will have to do with realizing that God's fingerprint is truly contained in all of creation, and a little beyond that, that he calls us to contemplate the true, the good, and the beautiful, for the sake of contemplating his own life and love. The church reads into beauty. The church thinks about the reality of beauty by simply realizing that it's not just that beauty exists for its own sake. In fact, that's a that's a minimalistic and, and frankly wrong way to think about beauty. Beauty can only be truly beautiful when it is contained in the right order of truth and goodness. And this is why we can only rightly say that within the created order, Christ's human nature was the most beautiful. But I wanna take it a little step further than that. Christ and God is beauty itself god is truth itself god is goodness itself and so whenever we contemplate these things that are truly true and good and beautiful in the culture and we elevate the culture forming it with a eucharistic covenantal biblical worldview we see not only the thumbprint of god we see the face of god slowly revealed to us calling us to his glory let's take a look at the headlines Thank you, Marcus, and good afternoon, everyone.
3: This is your Ave Maria radio news for Wednesday, January 10th. It's the Feast of St. Scholastica. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The president of Ecuador is declaring an internal armed conflict in the South American country after a group of gunmen took over a live TV news broadcast. President Daniel Noboa on Tuesday ordered security forces to neutralize criminal groups in Ecuador who have been accused of spreading violence in the region. The order came shortly after a group of armed men interrupted a live TV broadcast in Quito, Ecuador's capital, so they could read a message on the air and started ordering staff members to get on the floor. Ecuador police later said all the armed men were arrested and that all the TV staff were alive. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley will be the only White House hopefuls on the stage in tonight's Republican presidential primary debate. Alongside former President Donald Trump, they're the only ones that qualified for the CNN debate set to go down in Des Moines, Iowa, just days ahead of the state's first-in-the-nation caucuses. Trump has chosen to skip the event, opting instead to take part in a Fox News town hall with the latest polling showing him in first place Haley in second, and DeSantis in third. And YouTube is looking to help out in medical emergencies. The streaming giant revealed Wednesday it's teamed up with multiple health organizations, including Mass General Brigham and the American Heart Association. The content includes videos regarding CPR, choking, and other urgent health matters. The move is part of YouTube's initiative to crack down on medical misinformation in addition, viewers are urged to call 911 before looking up any material. From the Ave Maria Radio.net news desk,
2: I'm Dan McGraw. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al. For this segment, as I mentioned earlier, we'll be talking about. Uh, the a very common discussion, a perennial discussion, on the notion of faith and reason as being complementary. The question here is: Is God beyond reason? On September the sixteenth of uh, September the twelfth of two thousand and six, Pope Benedict the sixteenth gave what is perhaps one of the most monumental talks on faith, reason. Uh, faith and Reason, and the Study of Theology within the University. Here to talk to us about the reality of God and reason, and linking it to the wisdom of modern lit- of classical literature, is Joseph Pierce. Joseph is a senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. He's a native of England. Mr. Pierce is the director of book publishing at the Augustine Institute and the editor of the St. Austin Review. He's the series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions and is the author of numerous books, including The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, Literary Converts, and a whole host of other other titles. We invite you to visit his personal website at jpearce.co. Right now, let's welcome Joseph to the show. Joseph, it's great to have you on the show. It's good to be with you. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. I, I follow a lot of your commentaries, and uh, it was really my bride who turned me on to the the kind of work you do because she is a she possesses an undergraduate degree in literature, and uh, that's a major lacunae in in my own area of formation because I'm a theologian philosopher. And uh, encountering your work helped me see how the wisdom of theology helps enlighten the the in, these implicit truths that are found within classical literature. So. Is God beyond reason? Just take us through this recent article that you wrote and published in the Imaginative Conservative.
4: Yes, basically, the the I, I was. Uh, you, you, I'm very pleased you sort of alluded to a, a reference Pope Benedict XVI's uh, Regensburg address, um, because uh, you know they, what we see is basically the teaching of the magisterium uh, in that address, and which I'm trying to do in my own article that faith and reason. Fides et ratio, are indissolubly married. There's an indissoluble union, a marriage, a one-fleshness between faith and reason, and you can't separate them without both losing faith and reason. Uh, So the two have to be held together. And this, this idea, you know, that obviously is incarnate within the teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church is also implicit, certainly, and up to a degree explicit in some of the great Greek philosophers such as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. So uh, I was talking uh, in my article about the fact that um, God is beyond our human capacity to reason, but not beyond reason itself, and that's a very important distinction.
2: Absolutely, and in fact, that is the—that's one of the central claims of voluntaristic religion, such as Islam, which is very simply that God is beyond any categories. Which is one of the claims that Pope Benedict asserts, that is made by Emmanuel the II in his Regensburg address. So, this this entire article seems to have been prompted by a discussion that you had with a certain student. I believe it was uh, one of your graduate students. Would you would you care walking us through the nature of that discussion and what prompted you to flesh out these thoughts?
4: Sure. Yeah, he he he's not one of my students. You know, I I, I, um, I people write to me from all different places, so it's just a private correspondence, And this this is a graduate student in literature, and he'd written a thesis on uh, on Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, in which he basically uh, implied that that dante the character in the divine comedy had to if you like move beyond reason in order to ascend into paradise that basically reason takes you so far ultimately within the context of the divine comedy up to the summit of mount purgatory but if you want to go further into the mystery of god's presence in heaven itself you have to sort of leave reason behind that was what he was implying and that was what i was taking
2: issue with and why do we take issue with that? It, it would seem to be the imagery actually does uh, presuppose that the, the you know virtuous pagans, they stop short of this, this certain limbo pleasant afterlife without being able to go into the beatific vision. so he's I know he's playing off of that imagery within the divine comedy, uh, but but walk us through why why would you why would we as faithful Catholics take issue to that statement?
4: Well, the first thing is the reason that Virgil and, and, and the pagans can't enter into the beatific vision is not because they have wrong—the uh, reason is not sufficient, it's because they don't actually have revelation. <laughs> uh, they, 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 the Christ has not been revealed to them uh, as pagans. They do not know the fullness of reality uh, and the fullness of reason which is made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ as the incarnate God. They don't know that. So it's actually—it's it, it's a the, it's the theological de- defect— that prevents them getting into heaven, not a, a, a rational philosophical defect. The, the 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 analogy I use, the metaphor I use in the article, is that I, I talk about um, our relationship with God in terms of our ability to reason as being similar to that of a dog's relationship with its owner. So you know, if if its owner is reading a newspaper, the dog will know from from its its dog hu- dog uh, intellect, dog reason, that as long as the man holds that newspaper in front of him uh, the dog is not going to get fed or be taken for walk but the dog is never going to be able to read the newspaper because that's beyond the limit of the dog's ability so um but that doesn't mean that that you know it, it, that, that um the the reading is something which doesn't exist because we uh, are not able to do it so what i'm sort of saying is that part of the beatific vision is that when we as human persons are perfected we become the perfect person that we were made to be not just free from sin but also able to uh, engage with uh, reality uh, the ultimate beatific reality of god's presence on a level of uh, reasoning which is not possible in the veil of tears in which we find ourselves the cloud of unknowing and I, I i mean i ever say when i say the salve regina i always say veil of tears and not valley of tears because i like the um, the double entendre, veil being V-A-L-E as in valley, but also V-E-I-L mm-hmm. as in a veil that, 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 if you like, shrouds our vision. We, we see through a veil. We don't see things as God sees them. And, of course, we'll never be omniscient as God is, but we will have the perfected reason that's appropriate to our perfected being in heaven. And that's going to be something which is akin to the dog being able to read
2: precisely and you you make this wondrous distinction as you employ this analogy of in making sure that we understand that there truly exists a disparity they're, they're complementary but there's a disparity between understanding and reason and even within latin we've we've got the concept of comprehensio and apprehensio versus ratio so w- walk us through why it's so necessary for us as intellectual rational beings to be able to understand the distinction between these two terms and how that should be employed in our contemplation of uh, life as we know it in the afterlife.
4: Yeah, and well, that—that's uh, that, that's a great question, of course, and it's crucial, and it, and it, it plays upon one of the, the the problems we have in in the uh, implicit. Relativism, the dictatorship of relativism, as Pope Benedict uh, the Sixteenth would say, is that we we've, we cease to distinguish between objectivity and subjectivity. Now, ratio, reason, is something objective. It's something which exists whether we like it or not, know it or not, or can understand it or not. Uh, whereas our understanding is something subjective. It's something which belongs to us. That my understanding of something is going to be different from your understanding of something. Um, uh, and that's something which is relative to each of us, but uh, that it's not, it's something which is also subject to something bigger than itself, which is uh, reason. So in other words, that we, that we may understand something to varying degrees, but the thing to be understood is real regardless of our ability to understand it. So that, of course, is true in the absolute sense of God. Um, that God is true in His fullness, beyond our capacity to understand him as He understands himself. Um, but he is the logos, He is reason. Um in other words, all reason, if you like, shines forth from him and points back to him. And so reason is something which is um uh, transcends our ability to comprehend it. But it is not something which is irrational. And insofar as we comprehend it, we are are actually using reason. Insofar as we don't comprehend it, we have an inability to use reason.
2: You know, I love that you employed the term dictatorship of relativism, because precisely as you said, uh, uh, we can't completely comprehend reason itself, but we have an obligation to utilize reason, and God is reason. He's not bound by the category of reason, but he is reason itself. You know, thinking back to that uh, homily where Benedict XVI spoke about the dictatorship of relativism, it was the homily on, if I'm remembering correctly, it was on the event of the Uh, of the funeral of uh, Pope John Paul II, am I correct? In saying that, I think actually, I think actually, it was the final
4: homily he gave uh, uh, as Pope, uh, as Cardinal Ratzinger prior to the election. That's of, right. Of uh, ironically, himself that's as Pope. Right. Um, that, that's where that's where he coined the
2: term. Yes, exactly. And I remember reading, I remember reading reading that homily, and and I I already thought to himself, this man would make a fantastic Pope long before he was elected. And as soon as uh, as soon as he was elected, I remember reading that in hindsight, upon my conversion to the Catholic faith, thinking he doomed himself. You know, after after giving that that homily, that that, that one last address, that rousing uh, hurrah to to the College of Cardinals, there was no way that the Holy Spirit was not speaking as clearly as He was through Bennett, through Ratzinger, then saying that this is the man who's going to lead the Church in the footsteps of John Paul II and beyond. So uh just going back to the regensburg address then and even that that talk on the dictatorship of relativism benedict the highlights the problem of dehellenization and how it led to modern relativism as we know it and you talk about plato and aristotle and how they were baptized by augustine and aquinas we've got about a little under 2 minutes just just help us understand the relationship between hellenic philosophy and the theological thought of the church
4: Yes, basically, the, the key thing is we talk about the, the, the union of, of Athens and Jerusalem. If you like, the, the, the truth is revealed theologically through the covenant of the Jews, and it's fulfilled uh, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and, and, and that's the theological path to truth. Uh, in Athens, we see the rational path to truth uh, through those, that golden age of Greek philosophy, um, you know, four or five hundred years before the birth of Christ. And then Augustine adopts Plato, Aquinas adopts Aristotle, and we basically see Jerusalem and Athens, if you like, married, faith and reason, theology and philosophy, married. Uh, And the the real glory of of, of the Catholic Church, G.K. Chesterton said, that the Catholic Church is the one continuous institution that's been thinking about thinking for 2,000 years, and, 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 and an institution that's been doing that in terms of faith and reason is an institution that should be listened to, and we should also say that it's an institution which is not a human institution, it's the mystical body of Jesus Christ, the fullness of which is found in the Church triumphant, and all faith and reason leads ultimately to the beatific vision of God in the Church triumphant.
2: Thank you so much for your time on the show, Joseph, and I would love to continue these conversations uh, long after this, so uh, keep up your good work and just know that you're transforming intellects and lives. We want to thank you all for staying on the show. Keep staying tuned as we continue to t- on Crested in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter. It's time
5: for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Too often we parents get so caught up in the day-to-day grind of family life—appointments, chores, emails, and so on—that we don't spend enough time on our most important job—spiritually parenting our kids. What is spiritual parenting? It's nothing more than capturing our kids' hearts and then doing what we can to bring their hearts to God. The liturgy of domestic church life provides the rituals and routines we need to be good spiritual parents—prioritizing family time, being extravagant in our affection and affirmation, serving one another generously and cheerfully. And practicing gentle discipleship discipline. Ultimately, spiritual parenting is about helping our kids recognize their inherent worth so that they, in turn, can love God and others wholeheartedly. To find out more about spiritual parenting, check out our books Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Potschak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com.
6: Father Benedict Groeschel.
0: reverence to god all this was reverence now what do i see i hear one irreverence after another and week after week month after month the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of christianity in particular and particularly make fun of the catholic church no class absolutely no class
3: ewtn live truth live catholic
5: Millions of people have kicked off 2024 by making the traditional New Year's resolutions. Are you one of them? Are they related to your faith, your home life, your health? Let us know by going to AveMariaRadio.net and scrolling down to the poll of the week.
7: He was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the doctors of the church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility once declared, it was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the
1: Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective.
3: Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877 Life US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
1: The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life, in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life
2: evangelization. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Krista in the Afternoon. As I mentioned earlier, in this first hour, we're exploring in a kind of wider capacity this theme of the beauty truth and goodness of all of creation as it corresponds to the creator who who holds all these things in being. To admire the great masterpieces of Christian art in general prompts us to look into ourselves. It helps us overcome our interior fallenness for the sake of transcending it and ascending to God. In fact, Pope Benedict XVI, before he became Pope Benedict XVI, argued that today for faith to grow, we must lead ourselves and the persons we meet to encounter the saints and to enter into contact with the beautiful. To that end, I'd like to introduce you to two brothers. This is their first time on the program, Alex and Benjamin Wolliver. So they're brothers, they're accomplished musicians, performers, and teachers of the faith. They form part of the Annie Moses Foundation. The mission of which is to populate the world of music, theater, and film with extraordinary artistry and moral integrity within the lens of the Catholic worldview of truth, goodness, and beauty. Alex and Benjamin, how are you guys doing?
8: Great. great. Thanks for having me on the
2: show. Oh, the honor is all mine, truly, genuinely. And I just want to put this out there: the way I got in touch with alex and benjamin is through their program that's right now being aired on formed and it's uh, my, my two and a half year old son's favorite program called the wonderful world of benjamin cello but what i discovered with their work in the Andy moses foundation has been stellar so gentlemen i want to i want to open up the question and i'll i'll kind of go back and forth between the two of you maybe we'll start with alex uh, alex you and i were talking earlier and you mentioned this this amazing conversion experience that brought you and your entire family into the Catholic faith together. Mm. So just let's just start there, and then let's talk about your work with Faith in the Arts.
9: Mm, sure, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for having us on the show today. Um, it's an honor to, to speak to you, and we do have a, an unusual story. Um, you know, the, the more uh, you learn and go around, I guess the more unusual it, uh, you realize that it is. Everyone thinks uh, their own experience is somewhat... Similar to other peoples, but we all have quite unique unique pathways um, to God and to, I mean, into the church particularly. Um, so for us, I would say music. You know, people talk about music being a unifier, and that music brings people together. And music is literally the kind of the lifeblood of the life of our our own family. Um, and that started because our parents were, you know, professional songwriters and started training us in music when we were very young. Mm-hmm. And then, as we came of age and wanted to go perform, we wound up starting a band together and going out and performing and doing that, you know, all over the country and spending many years on the road touring. And it gave us, you know, a good snapshot of what I would call the kind of standard American church, you know, Protestant church in America, because mm-hmm. um, at that time we we were all raised and families were all from Protestant backgrounds. Um, and uh, anyway, I guess that. There's a dichotomy, um really, you know we have many great friends that are still protestants and or that are Protestants that we're still friends with, and you know uh, don't don't uh, you know we love them and everything, but there's something as an artist, particularly talking about truth, beauty, and goodness mm-hmm. that you know in kind of instinctively, I guess that part of experiencing God is experiencing that beauty, and you know as you pursue excellence in your craft and grow that, uh, I guess we, we, I like to say theology is our family's uh, sport. Um, we just, <laughs> if we were armchair, we're all armchair theologians um, to varying degrees, and um, and Benjamin and I actually got into a, a program where we were studying the theological background of aesthetics and the study of beauty as it related to theology. mm and from a Protestant standpoint oh, wow. and you quickly realize you know you can grow up in American Protestantism or modern the modern church, and you don't you don 't realize that you 're in an in an iconoclastic environment it's, right it's, exactly it's assumed it 's an invisible background, um, but then when you actually read the the protesters you know the people who were behind the the Reformation, and you realize what a critical element of iconoclasm there is in the protestant tradition
3: mm-hmm.
9: um as a musician and an artist i've found that to be a complete something completely divorced from what i instinctively knew about beauty and god and the arts as a mode of of worship and of extolling him you know right. pursuing god's glory through so, artistic expression so, so anyway, that, yeah, that's yeah so one i just want uh, where our family kind of
2: I, I yeah, want to get Benjamin's down perspective down. on this as well, because, so mm-hmm. Alex, you come, you come at this from your own expertise as a violinist, if I'm remembering correctly, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you're also quite a man of books yourself. Benjamin, mm-hmm. you come at this from uh, being a cellist. You, you play the cello, and uh, you've been doing this from a very young age in uh, Juilliard's early entry program. So uh, your own conversion story on a personal level mirrors your brother's, but uh, th- there's a specific reality to your own. So just, just share that with us.
8: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, obviously, as I was saying, we're really tight-knit. And so once one person started talking about Catholicism, we all started talking about Catholicism. Um, and, and, and you know, it, was, it made for fascinating conversations, because—and I have to uh, give kudos to my parents here, because, um, you know, they obviously were much later in life than us, and they crossed the Tiber and were very open to a lot of the things we were discovering— as we really and and I think the way I would characterize it is that our family was looking for the most stable ground mm. to confront what we confront in our culture, which is this uh, kind of acidic liquidity right just marriages, children, gender, everything is just being disintegrated you know as fast as possible right. by by a toxic culture and so for us um we began to say, you know what? We're not really meeting this challenge directly. You know, how do we meet it from a more rooted place? And, and honestly, I, I don't think we're alone in that. I think there's a lot of people who've been saying, you know, um, you know, what does mass look like? What does you know? What books am I reading? Um, who who am I listening to? What am I doing to push back this tide? And so, for us, becoming Catholic was part of that, um, and. You know, uh, we had a pretty incredible story where our mother Robin and our sister Annie went to an ecumenical event in Rome,
4: mm-hmm.
8: and uh, and my mother Robin, who's a very spiritual person, but she literally collapsed as she went into St. Peter's Basilica. She oh, wow. um, just, uh, you know, she's not Pentecostal or anything, but it was about as close to slain in the Spirit as you can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so she just didn't know what to make of that, and so they came back from Rome, and we started doing a lot more reading um, and discovered the Church Fathers in that process, and, and oh. just really found this rich
2: Yeah, that would um, doom you guys. Theology.
8: Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, we're, so we were and continue to be just thrilled to be Catholic and to have that rootedness that can undergird what we do artistically.
2: Right. And so... Uh, uh, I converted from a Protestant background as well. I was with the assemblies of God and Alex, as you mentioned earlier, this implicit understanding of an iconoclasm just permeates the mm-hmm. entire protestant culture uh, mm-hmm. and, and that must have been really difficult for you guys as as an entire family because your entire family is tremendously gifted artistically I mean not just music mm-hmm. uh, some of your painters your 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 poets mm-hmm. your authors your uh, singers and I, I believe Jeremiah plays the electric guitar it's so so mm-hmm. you know there's this, there's this real mixture of of the wonderful gifts of the arts and in, in in your Protestant understanding, then you start seeing a real disconnect between the art and your artistry with the faith mm-hmm. that you were called to profess so tell us about that
9: yeah i guess um, yeah. You know, we um you know we grew up in very i mean mainstream Main, not mainline Protestantism, but like i not like broad non-denominational Protestantism is mm. what I would say. And so there's there's a lot of music, you know, there's a lot of worship music. And and um, even though that is a, if you go back into the Greek and the original languages, the idea of worship music is kind of a, a misnomer. Um, <laughs> yeah,
2: it, don't get me started. I hear it you. It doesn't
9: exist actually. Um, <laughs> it's, pros, it's prostrating music. Um, but um, you know, I guess so. There is. I, I mean from a protestant perspective you would think there is artistic expression going on but it has to kind of stay in one small form but as soon as you branch out into and now there are a lot of people you know doing film and other things that are mm-hmm. you know from more of a faith perspective you know in varying ways but but there's really no theological underpinning within what you call like system the systematic theology of protestantism right. for making that you know or how that feeds in, even though it's still okay to have a giant screen of the worship leader in the church, <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. even though no other images are allowed, you know. Right. Um, it's kind of an irony there. But, um, you know, and I guess in if you get into some of the theologians like Francis Schaeffer, you know, from a Reformed background or these mm-hmm. others, they go to tortuous lengths to try to find a kind of sola scriptura basis for, you know, things like non-representational art and other mm-hmm. things based on the Jewish Temple and, and all this kind of stuff, and it, it winds up feeling uh, very—I don't know—a little bit manufactured. People are trying to trying to create these uh, these bases when we have this rich, multi-century history of Christian art. You know that that is being ignored, and I really think our own family. It's interesting because, as far as we can tell, our family was from the part of Germany and France. A part piece of our family was that was probably one of the first place is hit with the Reformation, ah. um, and uh, kind of in, in, at the border of France and Germany. And so anyway, I, I think that's indicative of our time, because as postmodernism has become so powerful a force in culture and in the minds of most people, right. you have this other drive to a pre-modern tradition. And I think that those two forces are becoming clearer and clearer every day. Um that you know, where in one sense you see people, you know, literally going into what you'd call insanity in any other in any other time. Right. Um, with the lack of anything objective. Um on the flip side, people are being drawn to something that is ancient and stable and uh, very rich in its humanity and in what we see as a human family. And that really, I guess one of my pivoting a little bit to our own work, you know, one of my favorite paraphrase. It's not a quote, a paraphrase, you might know the quote, but Plato says that you need to train the young to love what's beautiful mm. while they're young, so that they love it by instinct when they are old. That's right. When they're grown. And, you know, that for us is uh, I don't know, a guiding light in some sense that, you know, we just thought we started having kids, and, and really the having kids is what at first drew me. I I I had a, a moment where I realized that I did not agree with any one body of belief. There was no denomination that I thought was correct.
6: Mm-hmm.
9: I just had my own, you know, smattering of this and that that I thought were good ideas, and that I essentially believed that no one had read the Bible right except for me, which I knew was a statistically had to be impossible. So right, right. Becoming Catholic was part of growing a family and saying, where am I raising my children, right. and how do we do that? So that's really where um, what began, but now it's our process with the
2: wonderful world of Benjamin But So, um, I'm going to have to, we are coming up on a hot break. Been talking to Alex and Benjamin Wolliver, brothers, musicians, performers, and teachers of the faith. Stay tuned as we continue the conversation. on Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon.
10: Back by popular demand is our trip through Portugal, Spain, and France. We start with a day in Fatima, following all the steps of the Little Shepherds. Santiago de Compostela, The ending point for the El Camino is the home of the largest incensor. Visit the tomb of St. James the Apostle. Three days in Lourdes, which is quite indescribable, you'll have to come and see it to
0: believe it. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio Travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic Law School in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu.
4: Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com.
10: Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with a book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out.
6: 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope.
11: The Second Commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The disclosure of a name in the ancient world belonged to the order of trust and intimacy, and so when God revealed his name to Moses, it was an extraordinary outreach to us, saying uh, that we were called to an intimate, trusting relationship with him. And so we should always reverence this name as a great gift. We should obviously never use God's name to curse or to blaspheme or to berate others. God's name is meant to bring blessing. And likewise, the vain use. Vain means empty. Uh, So some of these expressions like, oh my God, or you know, and so on, uh, need to be avoided as well. Vain means empty, and those are using God's name as an empty kind of expression of exasperation. And then finally, never ever to use God's name to swear an oath falsely. God is the God of truth. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain.
6: For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. What is the most spontaneous form of prayer? The Catholic Catechism says it is the prayer of petition. Through prayer of petition, we express our awareness of our true relationship with God. We are not creatures of our own making. We did not begin ourselves, nor will we end ourselves. We are not the masters of adversity. We are sinners who know we have turned away from God. Our prayer of petition is already a turning back to Him. In the risen Christ, the Church's petition is buoyed by hope. The first movement in the prayer of petition is asking for forgiveness. That is, says the Catechism, a prerequisite for pure and righteous prayer. In the hierarchy of petitions, we pray for the kingdom, then what is necessary to welcome and cooperate with its coming. When we share in God's saving love, we understand that every need can become the object of petition. Christ is glorified by what we ask the Father in His name. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
2: Good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta. I'm talking to Alex and Benjamin Wolliver, brothers, accomplished musicians, performers, teachers of the faith, and they're part of a movement that's trying to revitalize artistry and the work of the arts in light of the Catholic tradition of truth, goodness, and beauty. So, uh, Benjamin, Alex mentioned earlier a, a very key platonic phrase that unfortunately seems to be completely lost in vernacular conversation, which is, we ought to train the young to recognize true beauty when they are young so that it becomes instinctual when they are older. And I want to start by very simply saying this. I think as a culture, we seem to think beauty is this innate thing that we automatically recognize. And the truth of the matter is, exquisite beauty, true beauty, requires formation of the soul. So, you know, let's just springboard off of that. Tell us about that.
8: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's absolutely true. Um, I know that, um, you know, one of the uh, inspirations for the wonderful world of Benjamin Cello was just that we... Um, A lot of us are newer parents. Um, We started having children and um, looking out at what was on offer to them uh, in terms of TV shows or music, and we're just (laughs) um, kind of buffaloed by the fact that so much of it is garish and of low quality. Um, You know, children are really, in our culture in so many ways, talked down to. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not, you know, we treat, Entertaining them as something for potty humor, you know, it's, it's the lowest of what we offer right, right. that we oftentimes toss to them. And we had a totally different vision. We um, saw that children, really, even from a scientific perspective, their brain is turning two and a half times faster than the adult brain. Mm-hmm. They're learning massive amounts of vocabulary um, from two to three to four years old. And we should be actually leaning into that. We should be educating them with, um, you know, truths of the faith that are words and music that's going to burrow down into the deepest part of their brain. You know, even Alzheimer's victims remember the songs they sang when they were little children. Exactly. So so it's actually 100% the opposite of what our culture tends to do. And so we created the wonderful world of Benjamin Cello. It was the brainchild of our mother, Robin. Um, she and our father, Bill Wolliger, have been songwriters and um, musical writers in Christian music for decades, won a bunch of awards. Um, but they had all of this backlog of material, and then a lot of just uh, missional drive, and wanted to say, you know, how, how do we communicate these things to kids? And um, Robin came up with this idea of the wonderful world of Benjamin cello which, for people who haven't seen it, is kind of like a Mr. Rogers meets Mary Poppins. It's very whimsical and meets Catholic theology and fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. And um, and so it's a a song and dance show with real puppets, and I play the lead character, Benjamin Cello, Mm -hmm. and we go through three different doors um, that take us to a land of art and music, a land of earth science and barnyard animals, and then a third door, which... Uh, goes to where Alex's character comes in, Professor Wordsworth, which is about books uh, in the book endless book tower, and we have the bookworms that are hilarious, and um, they they're always cutting up the action in the book tower, and so right. it, it's really mm-hmm. a harkening back to an older um, kind of Jim Henson, I guess, age of when we were really offering things of high artistry to children, mm-hmm. but baptized in a Catholic understanding of truth and beauty and goodness and God and and the value of the child.
2: I love that you mentioned that exact word because the first time I heard you say to the land, and so, uh, as I mentioned earlier to listeners, my son is a massive fan of this program and we watch one episode a day, and... Uh, so at some point, Benjamin Cello goes, uh, we'll go through this door into the land of the baptized imagination. And you see as Lewis fans will recognize that immediately because that's what Lewis says about what George MacDonald did for him. He baptized his right. imagination to understand that nature and, and truth and beauty and goodness could be used to contemplate the divine. So th- these mm-hmm. these little snippets are included throughout the program. So it's not just a children's program. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. uh, Alex, you, you can tell us a little bit more about this, but my, my Bendix's favorite episode is The Prosody Party, or one of his favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. and So, uh, you know, you go through the four rhyming schemes, and th- th- that's mm-hmm. pedagogical to children, sure, the way th- mm-hmm. the music allows that, but at the same time, there's a real timeless beauty for adults to gain from that, too.
9: Sure, sure. Well, yeah, and honestly, I mean, some of these things, uh, it, it's good to teach them to the children, but it's also teaching things that we've all forgotten mm-hmm. <laughs> as adults, too, you know? Right. Um, and, um And and it's actually interesting uh, because one of the criticisms that we, you know, when we started making the show, um, you know, you hand it to people who deal in children's content in a lot of places, um, and, you know, and they'll say, oh, these words are too big. You know, you shouldn't teach kids words like anapestic. Um, or you know, like the song you're talking about, we say right. uh, um, iambic, dactylic, trochaic, anapestic. know, because right. we're teaching the poetry meters. And um, but the thing that's hilarious is you know that really there's a underpinning in the the philosophy behind our show is that children will rise to the level that you expect of them, um, and really there's an enormous capacity to learn. Like a, a little boy like your Benedict. Um, our mother does lots of teaching on this, and she's the main writer behind the show. But, you know, a small child that's two to three years old, their their brain synapses are literally firing two and a half or three times faster than right. an adult brain. You know, and they have thousands of trillions of synapses that are all being devoted to language and learning words. And so, you know, a little two-and-a-half-year-old might, as you say, go around the house singing dactylic uh, and apestic um, and trochaic even i mean maybe they know what it means maybe they don't but those things are stored that's right um deeply in their mind and stay with them their whole life and even they say alzheimer's patients you know l- remember the things they learned to sing when they were children yep the, the very last thing we forget and so for us as musicians and people who are, our goal right it's for our own kids and for children like yours to instill these truths in them in a way that they can never be forgotten. Right. And that's what music can do uh, when you take, you know, great Scripture and theology and, and lessons like that and set it to music, as Augustine said, you know, he who sings prays twice. And right. um, that ruminating element of music and the memory of music is so powerful. Um, but often, for children, it's just meaningless ditties that are being sung. You know, to music that are that are, you know, you can switch out whatever words you want, but you can choose to have them be hiding scripture and yep. um, the deepest truths of life in that music, or they can be, you know, uh, meaningless ditties. So that is something that has been so powerful and and honestly rewarding, and and um, makes us very happy. You know, to see people and families like your own, you know, test testimonies of how that's worked in their own houses. so
2: Oh, absolutely. And it's made uh, our teaching of the faith and handing it down to our children a lot easier, too, because we've got beautiful illustration, we've got beautiful storytelling and artistry now that goes along mm. with mommy and daddy sharing verbally what's going on in the faith. So that's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, okay. build off your point real quick. A lot of people don't know this about Friedrich Nietzsche, but towards the end of his life, as he was going through this massive mental breakdown and, and having lucidity on and off the 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 points where he did have some kind of control the one thing that many people testified to him doing was re-singing or reciting the psalms that were read to him when he was a child
6: now this was a man who was
2: known as a consummate atheist Right. Mm-hmm. But but in mental breakdown, those were the things that were coming out, because we, just like you said, I think we underestimate the power of forming children in the right way from a young age because their brains are really absorbing this. Their souls are hungry for this. So, Benjamin, mm-hmm. to that end, I'd like you to just share what you what you guys do at the conservatory, informing young artists, informing in them to appreciate beauty and put forth beauty into the world.
8: Yeah, yeah. So we started the conservatory probably 10 years ago. I'm um, a little over 10 years ago. And it really grew out of our touring as a band. So, so people kind of have a sense of this. It's a little bit of a complicated story. So we were a family band called the Andy Moses Band. We, the oldest three of us were Juilliard trained. We left Juilliard and started touring. And this was way back in uh, 2002, 2001. And, uh, toured and performed all over America and abroad and had a lot of success with that. And then we started doing educational events, um, one of which we still do called the Summer Music Festival, which is um, the first two to three weeks in July, um, every July. And um, and the festival was just a huge success. Um, you know, we kind of <laughs> do what we normally do, which is we pour ourselves far beyond what I think anyone would ever expect into the kids that come. you know we, mm. I remember in early years because you know, what we do is we, we'll look at a profile of every child or every teenager and we will literally um, mark down their strengths and weaknesses, what they want to do, and we'll craft a whole show that fits that. So you know we might because our dad is an arranger and a composer, he might be arranging an Americana song for these three girls and putting in exactly the right key for them. You know, it, it's a level of mm. tailoring that just is extraordinary for music and music education. But we've seen and saw really from the beginning how it was transformational because, um, you know, these young performers, they just don't get that kind of one-on-one uh, focus um, you know, a lot of times they're playing pre-wrote repertoire right? Uh, that may or may not fit them, may or may not be something they're interested in, but we're able to give them a professional live performance experience, doing something that they're passionate about that fits them in personality and skill level. So, you know, we would have uh, kids come and leave and say, I'm joining two orchestras and I'm, you know, completely reinvested in my music. So we've been doing that for uh, really as long as we've been a band, but maybe 10 years into our Uh, work at the festival, we had a lot of families say, listen, we want this all year round. Mm -hmm. You know, the the amount of intensity and focus we're getting in July, we're not getting at home, can you teach us? So we started the conservatory, and at first it was a small program that would move from, you know, church to church, and (laughs) you know, school to school, just kind of finding uh, here and there to to suit uh, the number of people that we had. Mm -hmm. And it grew from there to the point now that we have a, a campus that's in Columbia, Um, where we have just finished last year renovating a theater called Packard Playhouse, and we've started putting on Broadway shows featuring a lot of the students that come to the conservatory. So the conservatory is really a performing school. It's about, um, you know, honing your craft, um, but not just being an instrumentalist. Instead, you know, we teach everything from songwriting to composition um, to, you know, drama. Um, We've had a few students that have literally written symphonies. (laughs) Not one, like multiple, (laughs) because they're mentoring with my dad, who's Mm. uh, uh, just an incredible mind. And um, so it's really an apprenticeship program, it's a discipleship program, it's a protégé program about this discipline of creating beauty in the arts. Um, And we make a point to share, you know, really every day in the God in the Arts classes, uh, the philosophy and the theology and the aesthetic. Right. um, Perspective that we want to undergird it, and you know it's interesting because we find that um, the world, you know, as, as Jesus said in his parable, I think it was the parable of the uh, the fishing net. You know, there's there's all kinds of people right. out there, and and one of the things that we've discovered uh, just in education and teaching is there are a whole lot of uh, kids that are just empty. You know, that they, you know, they've been eating fried. McDonald's food out in the culture yep, yep. and they just don't have they don't even know what the purpose would be for their artistry beyond TikTok fame or mm-hmm. you know some and and so really what we are praying the conservatory does over time is nurture leaders people who can go out into the world and be transformational in their impact through their skill and through their Christian witness
2: something So, uh, Alex, just building off of what Benjamin just said, uh, and Annie uh, says that in the promo for the Conservatory as well, which is that the arts have been tainted by flamboyant pageantry and the notion of celebrity. But but Mm -hmm. what you guys are doing at the Conservatory is vastly different. So tell us about what doing good art actually looks like. Mm.
9: Well, it's difficult. Um, I mean, it is a challenge for artists to find that intersection of say, authenticity and quality
5: and
2: Mm -hmm.
9: commerce or commercial uh, validity. Um, And I think, and particularly, that is true because the gatekeepers for much of what gets promoted or put out as art um, are not for expressions of truth, beauty, and goodness that we're talking about going out into the world. They kind of have a philosophical antipathy to that. Um, and so you often find that things that are true uh, might not be beautiful, <laughs> right. things that are beautiful might not be good. That's right. um, and um, those, um, so it's, it is um, a Alex, challenge. So it's,
2: Alex, I'm so sorry, we're hitting a heartbreak. Uh, I'd love to continue this conversation in the future. I've been talking to Alex and Benjamin Wollover, brothers, performers, musicians, and teachers of the faith. Stay tuned
11: as we round off this hour. And Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ is a literally and holy present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. Feeding 5,000 from a boy's five barley loaves and two fish, as recorded in John chapter 6, is quite a miracle. Yet the next day, Jesus downplays it in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Likewise, God's provision of manna to the Israelites in the desert was also a great miracle, yet Jesus similarly downplays it in verse 49. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is clearly stating that His Eucharist is greater than both of these amazing miracles, and the Catholic Church absolutely takes Him at His word. Examining the truths of the Catholic faith, this is faithforensics.org.
7: Dr. Ray Garendi. What's looking back at you at age 22? What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well, the way kids are turning out nowadays, counting my blessings. The parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say he's one in a hundred? morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred, then you be a one in a hundred parent.
2: Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon, rounding off the first hour of today's program. In the Prima pause of the Summa Theology, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about how beauty and goodness and truth are, in a sense, fundamentally identical. Now what this means is he's trying to say that beauty relates to the cognitive faculty. It is the well-formed mind that is able to actually perceive true beauty. Contrary to what we are being told in the culture that beauty is that which when seen is pleasing, there's something about forming the soul into this truth that allows us to appreciate actual beauty, higher beauty, higher artistry. So we as parents have an obligation to form our children to that from the youngest age possible. So look up the program, The Wonderful World of Benjamin Cello, and stay tuned as we continue on Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter.
0: Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: From the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: Good afternoon and welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Pete. I'm filling in for Al Cresta. For those of you joining us this hour, Al is away on business, continue to pray for all the good work we're doing here at Ave Maria Radio and EWTN as we work to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. In this hour, we'll be talking to the inimitable Steve Ray about the notion of God's calling for man. Now, I want to be very specific when we talk about this here. On the one hand, when we talk about how God speaks to us, we tend to, it's very common for the average Christian to think of some kind of inner locution. And therefore, it's a gift that's given specifically to some people and no one else, and, and, and few others at the very least. When the fact of the matter is God speaks to all his children. If, if I were to borrow an adage from a priest friend, it is a bad father who would desire a relationship with his children and not communicate with them. In his apostolic exhortation, this post-synodal apostolic exhortation entitled Verbum Domini, Pope Benedict XVI told us that we find ourselves faced with the advent of a reality which is absolute, that God our Father speaks to us about his inner life. And the Johannine prologue, this the great introduction to Christ as Logos, demonstrates to us that God is not only eternal, Jesus is not only eternal, that he is eternity itself. And this eternity decided, chose to become finite. The unlimited chose to take on limited human form. The immaterial chose to assume material human nature. He created us in his image and likeness, and he assumed our nature, that he may once again wed ourselves to us, despite the fact that we willingly chose to sin against him. And so he continues to speak to us through the church, through the liturgy, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through little promptings within our souls. But most primarily, he speaks to us through his word, and that is through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today, the calling of God in the word of God. For now, let's take a look at the headlines.
3: Thank you, Marcus, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria radio news for Wednesday, January 10th. It's the Feast of St. Scholastica. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. U.S. officials are calling accusations of genocide against Israel meritless. Following a meeting Tuesday with Israeli officials in Tel Aviv... Secretary of State Anthony Blinken called the genocide case against Israel a distraction. This comes as the International Court of Justice is preparing to hear a case this week brought by South Africa accusing Israel of committing genocide against Palestinians in its war on Hamas. Blinken, meanwhile, said the U.S. is urging Israel to scale down its military operations and reduce civilian casualties in the Gaza Strip. He also called for the release of hostages held by Hamas. Alaskan Airlines is facing new troubles following a scary incident in which a panel blew out of a plane during a packed flight last week. An Alaskan Airlines flight from Everett, Washington to Honolulu was redirected to Portland on Tuesday due to an issue with its radio. On Friday, the door plug on an Alaskan Airlines Boeing 737-9 Max aircraft blew out during ascent, tearing a passenger's shirt clean off his body. And coming soon mints that taste like Miller Lite. The beer brand plans to start selling beer mints this Friday that are hailed as having the freshness of a mint, but the great taste of Miller Lite. The alcohol-free mints are being marketed for those taking part in dry January, where people abstain from or at least cut back on alcohol for a month. The mints are five bucks for a tin of 40 and will be available at MillerLiteBeerMints.com. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw.
2: Good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. Today's first reading is not unfamiliar to many of us. It's taken from 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 to about 20, and it speaks of Samuel's first hearing of God's voice. Now there's a lot that can be unpacked in this reading and the most common part of this reading that we all know has to do with God calling him, Yahweh calling him and his response here I am you called me, here I am Lord you called me. So speak for your servant is listening. So to unpack this for us we have no stranger we have a dear friend Steve Ray who is amongst other things a pilgrimage leader to the holy land rome and other sites he is a prolific author converted to catholicism in 1994 author of crossing the tiber upon this rock and other books including the brand new study of the book of genesis <coughs> he's the host and producer of the footprints of god dvd series and he's been to the holy land more than 200 times in his lifetime steve my friend how are you doing? Very good
10: Marcus, thanks for having me on. Uh, and always nice to talk with you.
2: Likewise, the honor's all mine and you know as as one as a fellow scripture enthusiast to another, you, you always get me fired up with not only your love <laughs> for the scriptures but it shows that in your love you've studied deeply some of the the imagery and the history behind it. So I want to I want to start right there Steve. Uh, t- today's reading, we've got young Samuel sleeping in the house of Eli in the temple and Yahweh calls him, and we've got kind of this first encounter between God and Samuel. So unpack to us some of the imagery that we might be missing on the surface.
10: Well, yeah, just imagine you're a little boy, and you've been raised in the temple, and you hear a voice at night, and it says, calls your name. So what I like to do is kind of put myself in those situations. Uh, Now, the temple was not in Jerusalem. It was in Shiloh which is up in the uh, Palestinian West Bank of today for about 360 years, mm-hmm. It was uh, the temple was up there in Shiloh. If you want to see the place, look at my movie, David and Solomon, that we made because we filmed it all, um, the whole story, and showed where this was. And he's, his mother had, as we've been hearing in the readings for the last few days, his mother was barren. She gave uh, promises to God, please give me a son. Eli said, "You'll have a son." She has a baby, and she dedicates him to the temple. But it would have it would have been three years old because the babies were breastfed till they're three years old back in those days. Right. And so, and we learn that especially in the Book of Maccabees. But so now he's just a young boy, and he's just living there with this priest and the and the priest's family and two corrupt sons. They are. They're not. They're greedy guys. So he, you know, he's just a little boy. I I just imagine my grandkids one of my grandkids sleeping there and um in fact i have a grandson named samuel tarsicius mm, oh my, wow my my son named his kids after an old testament and a new testament or a saint name so he named him samuel it was the year of the eucharist and so he named him samuel because samuel this little boy was um sleeping in front of the 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 ark of the covenant <laughs> it is the body, right. in, in a way. There's the word of God inscribed in stone, and um, and then Tarcisius was a boy from the third or fourth century who gave his life defending the Eucharist. He, right. he grabbed the Eucharist and defended it. So that's my grandson's named after those two. But so this thinking of my one of my grandsons, young guys, got twenty of them now. Um, see them. All of a sudden, in the middle of the night, hearing a voice mm-hmm. calling to them. And you, you wouldn't know what that is. I mean, this is the first time anything's happened like this. You run and you think it's Eli, because Eli's just down the hall. That's know, right. It's around the corner. Eli, what what, did, what do you need? And he said, well, I didn't call you. Go back and go to sleep. Maybe it was a dream. Who knows what it was? So he goes back, and he was sleeping where the ark of the Lord was. And then the Lord called him again. And he said, here I am, and ran to Eli. And... um I said, that wasn't me. And so three times. So he said, go back and lay down. And if you hear the voice again, it might be God, probably is God, and say, here I am, for you called me. But he, uh, let's see, here was exact wording. Uh, Eli says, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Right. So he went back and laid down in his place. You know, I, I, I doubt he fell back asleep because... I, this is happening to me i'd lay there with my eyes wide open and right the lord right. came <laughs> so you know i try to it, it's one of the things that we talk about lectio divina um meditating and praying over the word of god and in a lot of ways i have a good imagination should so try to put yourself in the shoes there uh-huh. um so then the lord came and he called as at the other times Samuel, Samuel. But, you know, we say Samuel, but uh, uh, that's not the way he would have heard it, because in Hebrew, which his name is Shmuel. That's right. That's how you say it in Hebrew, Shmuel. And it means that his name is God. So then he says, speak for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a great thing. And then he announces what he's going to do. And that he uh, one day and that on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house. So against Eli. So this little boy's being given kind of inside information about something that's going to happen to his boss in right, a way. You right, know, right. Eli's the boss. And I declare to him, I'm about ready to punish his house forever. Now, what does a little boy do with that kind of information? Well, he sits I, on it. Yeah, yeah, I would too. Because uh, Eli says, go talk to him. And then he comes back and says, well, guess what, Eli? He said he's going to devastate your house and your sons. Um, no, he sits on it. He has to. And so then God tells him what he's going to do. So here we have Samuel. He is the last of the judges so to speak the book of judges mm-hmm, just precedes first mm-hmm. samuel and we have i think there's uh, 16 of them who come to deliver israel over a 300 year period or so mm-hmm. and now he's the last of, he's got the distinction of being the last of the prop of those judges but he's also the first of the prophets now and he's going to become a prophet and so mm-hmm. he he kind of it's kind of a he's got his foot in both camps the right, judges right. and now the prophets. So, But anyway, I just I see this young boy, and so he knows that God's called him, and now he has to. And, and, and by the way, Marcus, and I know you know this, but in the Bible, 14 times we read the words, Here I am, Lord, or Here am I, Lord. Right, um, that's and right. So that, that, that variation of
2: Hineni, yeah.
10: Yeah, so if, if, uh, just the way to see that, it's been uh, twice Abraham says it, once Jacob says it, Moses says it, Tobias, uh, Isaiah, Ananias, who was to to lay hands on Paul, said it, and five times we see those words here in Samuel. And God himself uses that phrase, here I am, twice to show his accessibility to us. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, for all of our listeners, if you ever hear the voice of God in the middle of the night, just say, The proper way that the scripture teaches, here I am, Lord, and then shut up and wait for him (laughs) to tell you what he wants to say.
2: (laughs) Although, to be fair, I think even as grown adults, if we actually heard the audible voice of the Lord in the middle of the night, it would terrify us. I I jump out of bed.
10: Yeah, you know, I I have to say this real quick. Some of the biggest decisions Janet and I, my wife and I have made in our life came from dreams. Mm. And they weren't a a voice of God speaking, so to speak, but they were very vivid dreams. I can think of three of them that set the whole course for our, our life.
2: Wow. So, so uh, I want to uh, dive into some of the minutiae here. A lot yeah. of people take for granted the fact that, first of all, so we have the biblical tradition of Samuel being given to the temple when he was three years old, which yes. was really hard for Hannah, because as you mentioned earlier, oh. not only is she barren, barrenness, like today, because of, you know, second and third wave feminism, there's this kind of almost celebration when a woman has lesser children. But the fact yes. of that is, in the biblical narrative, her not having children was seen as a curse.
10: Well, it, it it always was because see t- today we have all these welfare programs and women own property and they own businesses and they have big bank accounts they can and they but in those days women didn't own property and, and there was one situation in the Book of Numbers where us, uh, some women were given their proper father's property it was a very unusual. It, mm-hmm. it just, um, Exception, so first of all, the women didn't own property or have career jobs, so to speak necessarily, mm-hmm. and there was none of these uh, programs, governmental programs. a woman who does she she depends on her father, and then the father hands her off to a husband, right so the father takes care of her for the first part of her life, the husband takes care of her for the middle part of her life, and then the great hope is to have a son, because Mm -hmm. husbands die, and we see that many times in Scripture, and the sons take care of the mother. This is why women were so desperate to have a son, not a daughter, because a daughter would go and live with another family, with her husband and their family.
6: Mm-hmm.
10: But she had to have a son. And that was such a crucial thing. We see it with Sarah also in the book of Genesis. Right. Did not have a son means that in your old age, you could be destitute, which brings us to the Lord at the cross, because that's why Mary had no other sons, There was relatives, yes, but she didn't have any sons, Mm -hmm. and therefore Jesus said, woman, John is now going to be your son, and John, take care of my mom.
2: You know, that that honestly, when I was an anti-Catholic Protestant, that was genuinely, knowing the historical context, the nail in the coffin for the argument of Jesus having siblings through Mary. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one. Literal impossibility. If if Jesus gave her to John, he was literally saying a- acknowledging no one no other son was there to care for Mary. So c- clearly right. James and John were not the brothers of Jesus the way you and I would understand brothers today. Right.
10: Exactly, right. And and um so th- we that's another whole topic about her ever virginity mm-hmm, and the, um, mm-hmm. But but th- but that just shows the the necessity of a woman having a son. So she, uh, Hannah, and by the way, that's the name Anna in the New Testament. Mm. Anna is the Greek for Hannah of the Hebrew and the Old Testament. Just so if anybody's name is Anna, they know where it came from. So that this she's giving her social security welfare uh, checks away in a sense. Mm. She's she's giving away her whole retirement plan it would be like a woman today who has all of her retirement set up in her and and she's count and knows her husband's probably gonna die before she does And that often happens and instead of keeping all that she gives all of that to the temple this is really in a way to view what hannah did because she's right. giving away her son to the temple in her old age
2: she, she gave away her whole life so to speak yeah exactly the whole the whole thing a woman
10: prays and longs and desires more than anything else is to have a son.
2: So, uh, you know, we're going to come up on a heartbreak here. I want to continue this part of the conversation, but uh, the the fact of the matter is when Samuel is given, the scriptures tell us that his father, Elkanah, was of the tribe of Ephraim, and that presents a problem because Samuel is doing priestly work, including maintaining the lights on the altar and sleeping before the ark. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'd like to hear you talk about that on the other side of the break. Been talking okay. to Steve Ray, who leads pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Rome, and other sites, and is a prolific author. And we'll continue the conversation on the application of scripture in today's readings and the call of God. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Crush John Crester in the afternoon.
6: Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. I often have people ask me, aren't you scared when you talk about the issues such as abortion or uh, all the different ideologies, especially the gender ideology, I see I'm scared of what I don't say if I'm not using this platform that God gave me wisely and well. If I'm not sharing information with people, if I'm not sharing the truth of the Catholic faith, I'm going to be held accountable as is any one of us who has a platform, and we all have a platform. The sizes and the extent are different. But every single person, especially if you have a computer and if you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, you have a platform. And so we're all responsible to evangelize. And we may be fearful, but we move through that fear with trust that God is with us. He tells us he will give us the words. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. How did the first community of believers in Jerusalem pray? The Catholic Catechism tells us that as Christ's disciples were gathered together on the first Pentecost, the spirit of the promise was poured out on them. They were in one place devoting themselves to prayer. The Holy Spirit came to teach the church, to recall for her everything Jesus said, and to form her in a life of prayer. The first community devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. This sequence is characteristic of church worship founded on apostolic faith, lived in charity, and nourished by the Eucharist. The faithful hear these prayers and read them in the scriptures and make them their own, particularly the Psalms. Thus, the Holy Spirit keeps the memory of Jesus Christ alive in his church at prayer. He leads her to the fullness of truth. He also inspires new formulations to express the unfathomable mystery of Christ at work in his church. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
5: Millions of people have kicked off 2024 by making the traditional New Year's resolutions. Are you one of them? Are they related to your faith, your home life, your health? Let us know by going to AveMariaRadio.net and scrolling down to the poll of the week.
1: With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Crest on the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective.
6: The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord, the majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh?
10: If your sins are as scarlet, Oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as
3: snow. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic.
1: CMF Curo is a Catholic health ministry providing families nationwide
9: with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our
1: members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit mycatholichealthcare.com. That's mycatholichealthcare.com.
0: Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.
2: Good afternoon. Welcome back to Creston in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter here, filling in for Al Cresta. I'm talking to Steve Ray about the biblical narratives that speak about the call of God. And we were talking about specifically today's readings where Samuel is called by God in First Samuel chapter 3. So, uh, Steve, you were, you were going to explain to us just how that was explained. Like, how did biblical tradition reconcile this? Because the Levitical law was really strict about the fact that only Levites could perform services upon the altar, and, you know, sleeping before the ark, maintaining the 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 lamp of the altar—all of these things were Levitical tasks. So, uh, tell us how how is it that Samuel, whom the <clears throat> scriptures tell us come from the tribe of Ephraim, uh, was able to do this?
6: Yeah, it's
10: it's he's from the tribe of Ephraim, and but he is an Ephrataite, and that is he is a, a effort uh, is Ephratite is another name for Bethlehem. Mm. So it's kind of confusing because he is. A, a resident of of ephratite that's what he is a uh, from but he's also says that he is from ephraim ephraim is uh, interesting because it's not even one of the sons of jacob it's not one of the yep. 12 tribes because you they pulled the tribe of levi out and replaced it with the two sons of joseph right ephraim and manasseh so he's from one of the sons of of Joseph. So, why, how that happens, I don't know in this case, other than God makes exceptions, I think, at <laughs> times. And even, for example, look at Jesus. He is the high priest, but he's right. not from, also, he's not from the tribe of Levi or That's the house right. of Aaron. He's from the house of Melchizedek. So, obviously, there's exceptions to that. And I think that probably, and I'm, um, but, but you may have a different answer than I am thinking of here, but that God looks at the hearts of people, and he, he, he even in the book of Genesis, what I'm Writing it, he he doesn't always choose the person that you think he's going to choose. That's right. (laughs) The firstborn son is supposed to be the one that carries on his father's legacy and his father's estate, but very rarely does that happen. You don't. Cain doesn't. Abel does. It's Seth, and you don't have even uh, Jacob and Esau. That's Uh, right. Abraham's not the oldest, and Isaac is not the oldest of mm-hmm. abraham um, so god does exceptional things at times i i like the way it refer to catechism refers to the sacraments that he is the author of the sacraments but he is not bound, bound by, by them, them. yep and so he can say okay here's samuel he's going to be the first of the prophets but he's also going to to serve in the um in the house of the lord
2: too yeah, I've seen scholars... Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I've seen scholars attempt to reconcile that multiple different ways. Uh, some argue that Eli covenanted Samuel into his own family. And when that happens, Samuel is ostensibly a Levite. The second argues that despite the fact that they lived in, an Ephra- in the area of Ephraim, that didn't necessarily mean that they were of the tribe of Ephraim. And that one could possibly argue for a a Levitical lineage but I mean either way the most important lesson we can learn here is that Samuel is singled out because of his heart for the Lord and being the last judge and first of the prophets the Lord knew he needed someone who would be completely committed to him and Samuel proved to be that person
10: right and that's the way God often does. He, uh, you know, even David, for example, he is presented, him and Solomon, as prophet, priest, and king throughout right. the Old Testament. For example, David is the king of the tribe of Judah, but he also wears the ephod and he dances that's in right. the priestly garments in front of the ark. And he also quite the prophet, isn't he? He wrote 73 of the Psalms. Right. So, So here you have some exceptions as well, even David and, and, uh, Solomon were, were acted as
2: priests priestly figures. Times. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, Solomon blessing the people in second Kings, uh, right
10: the, and calling and the offerings that he offered the that's right. the bulls and remember that David ate the showbread in the temple that only the priests were allowed
2: to eat. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so so clearly we see allusions here of the fact that the priesthood while having been delineated to the Levites post golden calf incident was always in the heart of God to be restored to a father son priesthood and those yep. of the right heart did receive that blessing before Christ and <clears throat> Samuel clearly is one of it uh, one of them. Yep. So, I want to pivot then to another call narrative, and this is in a small way first, but let's talk about the call of Noah. So, uh, John Levinson, Professor John Levinson, he talks about how in the Hebrews, his reading of it is that Noah wasn't perfectly righteous, but he was considered righteous for his time. And you know like like <laughs> that's that's a bit of a, 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 a trying to trying to strain the text a little but in, in your book you go through the fact that Noah was living in a righteous manner and that's why God called him so tell us about that
10: and he would also know that Noah was he was a righteous man and he was living different than the people around him mm-hmm. and and we also have to remember for example that that we they didn't have the full revelation that we have today right right that we you know these guys are living back there was no scripture yet in Noah's time. There was no book of Genesis. There was the tradition that was being passed on, of course, that Moses would have written down then. But uh, we have the full revelation of God, so we may use the word righteous in a different way than, than Noah would have thought of being righteous. And also we have Job, who is a righteous man and is, uh, sinless and did all it was right before God. But um, So you have Noah being called because God... I'm convinced looks at people's hearts that's what he looks at and he sees for example when he chose Abraham that's the great calling that I like God called Noah because he knew that Noah would obey him and follow through with all of right. this even with the scorn and the ridicule of the people around him just think mm-hmm. of that for all the time it took to build that ark they'd be laughing at him That's right uh, so how are you going to get that thing to the water you know where's <laughs> your uh, where's your pickup truck with the uh, boat Trailer, you know, how are you going to get that thing to the water?
2: Are you going to steer um, it? You know, where's the rudder? Like, how are you going to sail yeah. it? <laughs> that's
10: <right>. So, now, <coughs> excuse me, I got a cold in my chest. Um, with Abraham, you wanted to talk about callings. I, I think that's probably one of my favorite <clears throat> call of Abraham because. Here's a guy that's living in a very opulent land. He's very successful. He's got mm-hmm. 318 men working for him. He's, he's really got quite the opulent lifestyle. Ur of the Chaldees was a very upscale um, community. It was a yeah. very upscale society. Yeah, it would have been and, considered uh,
2: metropolitan for its time.
10: Oh yes and they, and they have a lot of pottery and musical instruments mm-hmm. and things. I did all of that in my movie on Abraham called Abraham Father of Faith and Works because we went to Iraq and filmed there and everything mm-hmm. and 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 it's uh, uh, he left all of that and I have one of my favorite poems I'm not going to read the whole thing but I do want to just if you'll bear with me I just want to read a couple lines from it and I make the point in, in my book, and when I give talks over in Israel especially too, that if God had called me and said, Abraham, you're 75 years old, all of these the flocks and herds that you have and the 318 men, and I want all of you now to go to a place I'm going to show you and he doesn't tell him much more than that I'm going mm-hmm. to make of you a great nation so my, my reaction and this is how I put myself in the biblical story sometimes is I would have said to God okay now I, I got my GPS here I'd like to see where is right, that place right, you're right. going to send me to on the map here and what kind of a, a pension am I going to have and what kind of health insurance and you say I'm going to own the land Can I, I would like to have a signed deed for that land now mm-hmm. before I go because this is 1600 miles he's going to have to walk and he doesn't right. know where it is and you can only when you have flocks and herds travel an average of six miles a day Mm -hmm. so say that this is 1600 miles somebody else can do the math I'm not a mathematician but divide (laughs) 1600 miles by six miles a day when you move with flocks and herds and families and his workers had families obviously but I just here's a poem it's called the call of Abraham and I'm just going to read the last few lines at 75 I'm supposed to scuttle my life and and take this ancient wasteland sarah place my arthritic bones upon the road to some mumbled nowhere he he said um in ten generations since the flood you've spoken to no one now like thunder on a clear day you give commands pull up my tent desert the graves of my ancestors you come late lord you come very late but my my camels will leave in the morning
2: i know that's so beautiful
10: That just gives me shivers every time I read that, because here's a 75-year-old man, and he's picking up and leaving everything. He's leaving his God.
2: The God was
10: called Nana, the God of the moon. And they worshiped this God. And if you say Abraham didn't, well, in the book of Joshua, when Joshua was talking to people, he said, your father's. Haran mm-hmm. and, and Abram these they worshipped other gods right. foreign gods and the other side it wasn't until he's seventy five that he hears from the Lord of Glory so right. this is the call of Abraham and he says here I am Lord and he packs up and he goes this is just an incredible thing then then his grandson Jacob is quite the opposite
1: yeah when God calls
10: yeah. him I I just love this uh, then and. and God had spoken to Abraham, and He'd spoken to Isaac, but He hasn't spoken to Jacob yet. And Jacob, his brother Esau, is going to kill him because he's a crook, he's a trickster. Yes, he steal, yep. he, he stole his brother's birthright. He, you know, he yep. lies to his father about who. I mean, the guy. Fact, the he, word Jacob,
2: the, even Correct. when he's stealing the the birthright. Uh, you know, when when Isaac asks him how did, how were you so quick, he goes, "The Lord your God." Help me be successful, you know. Like, <laughs> right. and that nuance is not to be missed. This guy has no—he—he's in covenant with God, probably be owing to his father Isaac, but he's got no personal bond with this God. He's got no fidelity no. to this God.
10: He doesn't have a dog in the race yet. He's—he's he's just uh, thinking of himself, and—and and, um, he's a mama's boy that hangs around the tents, and mm-hmm. and Esau is out catching the wild game, and. He, even his name, Jacob, means crook. It right, means right. a supplanter, one who grasps and t- tries to cheat and get everything for himself. So here, after the first time, he's he's fleeing because his brother Esau is going to kill him. He's going to go up to Haran, which is in Turkey of today. Do you want to see it? It's in my movie on Abraham. Mm-hmm. And he, God reveals himself In a dream to him of a ladder and angels going up and down on the ladder. Now, that ladder is very interesting what that represents. Um, It represents the Lord Jesus, of course, Mm -hmm. and the cross, which bridges. But, you know, I have a big icon here in my house, and it has a picture of Jacob holding a a banner written in Greek. And it says, um, oh, where is that? It says, you, O blessed virgin, who brought down the Messiah. You are the ladder, which brought down the Messiah to us. So even some of the uh, the Greek uh, Orthodox liturgies has that. But anyway, he sees this ladder, right? and he makes a vow. And he says, if God will be with me, and if he keeps me along the way, and if he gives me bread to eat and mm-hmm, clothing mm-hmm. to wear, and if he brings me back to my father's house in peace, then he will be my God. <laughs> <laughs> See the, the total opposite of his Red. father yep. and grandfather. Yep. This guy's a wheeler dealer, so he's playing he's playing, let's make a deal with God, where the other one said, Here I am, Lord Jacob's Let's let's make a deal.
2: Right. We're going to continue this conversation with Steve Ray on the other side of the break. We're talking about the biblical notion of being called by God. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon.
8: Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit.
6: Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? Even things you don't believe in? There are
2: options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community.
6: Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families.
5: Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399.
3: Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
5: It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. If you've ever bought a plant at a garden center, you know most flowers and vegetables require at least six hours a day of direct sun. Sure, you can plant them in a shady spot without killing them, but it's not like they're going to thrive if you do. Well, researchers say that to really thrive, most families need 10 to 15 hours of working, playing, talking, and praying together every week. That's why family time is the foundation of the liturgy of domestic church life. If your family isn't getting enough time to connect, then it might be time to rearrange your schedule. You don't need to cancel everything that you're doing, but start scheduling regular appointments for family meals, prayer, and recreation a few months out, gradually building up to a healthier lifestyle. To learn more about living the liturgy of domestic church life, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popczak, but you can call me Family. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit catholiccounselors.com.
1: Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo.
7: John chapter 11, verses 21 to 26. This is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Lazarus is one of his best friends. Just before this passage, we hear the news that Martha and Mary send word to Jesus that the one you love is sick. And the next line in the scripture is, now because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was. His friend's in need. He can heal. They've seen him heal before. And yet somehow, because he loves him, he stays. And Lazarus dies. And then Jesus shows up three days later and is greeted by Martha and Mary, who confront him with the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Rather applicable for many of us in our lives. We ask the Lord to do one thing because we're certain it is what we think is best. When in fact, he has something which far surpasses what we ask for. The challenge is, in waiting for that to happen, we go through very trying times, which oftentimes makes us wonder, does he really care? Hey,
2: good afternoon. Welcome back to Crest on the Afternoon, final segment of the second hour of today's program. We're talking to the renowned Steve Ray about the biblical understanding of biblical narratives about God calling people and what we can learn from this. Now, Steve, before we go on, I really want to have you share with us about some of your new pilgrimage uh, efforts that, that have been going on. So please tell us about them.
10: Well, thank you. And they're all sponsored by Ave Maria Radio, too. All the brochures have Mm -hmm. the logo stamped right on the cover. Um, Since we have lost, or postponed, I should say, four trips to the Holy Land because of this, four trips to date, what we did is we've inserted a couple of new ones, two domestic and two international. Mm -hmm. So uh, coming up in April, and if anybody wants to join this, they'd have to get it pretty quick, as we're going to St. Augustine, Florida, one of them is, and this is where Catholicism really came to the new world. Yep. These the Spaniards came to St. Augustine fifty years before the Pilgrims arrived.
2: That's right. The first I didn't know
10: that. And I didn't know that. Fifty years earlier, it was already a parish, and the Mass was already established in mm-hmm. St. Augustine. For, and so we're going to go there and see the whole place. There's a lot to see. The, the first uh, Marian shrine, too, the Leche. So we'll spend time in all those places, have Mass on the beach and everything where they landed. Then the other one we have is the Lord's and Fatima. A lot of people ask me about that one. So mm-hmm. in April, we're also... That one's selling out fast. We're going to go all through Portugal, Spain, and France. We're going to visit um santiago de Compostela the mm-hmm. end of the el camino the mm-hmm. tomb of saint james the apostle um, fatima we follow the children there and have mass and do the procession in the evening same thing at lords mm-hmm. and loyola that's a very nice trip and then in the summer we're going to the um, the catholic heritage of ireland we've mm-hmm. done that before and that's a beautiful pilgrimage going through ireland and seeing a lot of the shrines, and of course we'll spend a half a day at Knock, mm. Our Lady of Knock, and I give a talk there about how that that apparition is all about the Eucharist. Mm. Interestingly enough, that's what this year is about, and it's from the Book of Revelation. The whole. Um, the whole apparition of Knock was about the revelation, about the book of Revelation, from it, and about the Eucharist. And then we're going to also do Wisconsin, the shrines of Wisconsin, which right. is um, a very nice one. And you know, there's no jet lag. on going to this one. <laughs> you don't have any jet lag. So in that, we're going to see the um, National Shrine of St. Joseph, the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and Cardinal Burke is going to celebrate Mass and have dinner with us there, Mm -hmm. and we've already got that scheduled, and also there is the only American-approved Marian apparition there in Champion, so we're going to spend a day at the Marian apparition there, which is quite nice. So CatholicConvert.com. Click on that top link and uh, and you'll see all of our upcoming pilgrimages. We also have a, a Saint Paul cruise coming up. It's going through all of the ten biblical sites and Rome, but right. I don't. That one's filling up really fast. So if that means, I don't know if people would even be able to get on that one if they don't hurry. So anyway, <laughs> thanks for letting me mention those.
2: Oh, no problem at all. I mean, all of these are truly evangelistic tools and. Uh, I've always been convinced that pilgrimages You know, you you talk about how uh, the Holy Land is the fifth gospel Because a pilgrimage to the Holy Land Is as pedagogical and evangelistic as reading the gospels if, If not more so So I've always believed that pilgrimages always had that effect So yeah, thank you for sharing that with us
10: Sure, thank you
2: so I, w- I want to uh, go back to the readings of today. We're still talking about this notion of biblical narratives of of God calling us, God, God calling us out of something. And there really is a thread that unites all of the readings today, because it would it would appear on the surface that Mark's gospel completely has no connection to the first reading and the uh, and the responsorial psalm. But that's not true, is it?
10: No, if you just read the the from Samuel and then from Mark, you're kind of it's a head scratcher. What what is the church trying to get us to see here? But I, the way I view this, is the Psalm in between Psalm 40 is the linchpin between the two because you have in first samuel you have samuel being called he's being called he has a purpose by god and he's even coming from a miraculous birth in a sense because his mother not not a virgin birth but his mother was uh, in old age and was was sterile right. and so he is a miraculous birth and he is dedicated to the temple to serving god in this very special way then you then you come to the um to the psalm now which it says when christ came into the world it's actually i'm quoting from hebrews because this passage of psalms is quoted in hebrews mm-hmm. and when christ came into the world he said "Sacrifices is an offering you've not desired but a body you have prepared for me so it's like hannah it's, there's a body prepared she, samuel's being prepared for hannah mm-hmm. and to serve in the temple in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no no pleasure but Then I said, Behold, and this is Jesus speaking to to the Father. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. And he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. So here you see Samuel coming, being called to do God's will, and he, and the psalm then carries that on, and it brings us, it's a messianic one pointing to Christ, and then what do we see in the book of Mark is Jesus coming to do that will of God. He's healing people, he's preaching, he's casting out demons, and he says in, in the, towards the end of that passage i i'm doing what i came to do what i was called to do so you see the flow it's always fun isn't it to, yeah, to, absolutely. to do the readings and see what what's the church thinking why yep. did they use these passages <laughs> yeah to find it's the a golden to, yeah.
2: to find the golden thread of the wisdom of the church and yeah. stringing together yeah. these texts yeah so yeah. So all of this all of these readings speak to a willingness on the part of the recipient of the call I am I'm I'm here lord I'm going to Right
10: I'm going <clears throat> to And, to do and really me. you could say a, a summary of all three of them is here I am lord that's what samuel that's right. says that here i am lord um the psalm says that i've come to do your will here i am you've given me a body and i'm here to serve you right. um the, the king david wrote that so he's referring to himself but it's more even more so a messianic a, a pointing towards christ and then you have christ who obviously is saying the same thing that i've, I've come to do your will i'm i'm doing the, the healing the blind healing the lepers, uh, all these people and undoing what God wants me to do. Right now, there, There's one interesting, no, go ahead, I was going to bring up the mother-in-law of Peter, but go oh ahead. Oh yeah,
2: you know what, uh, go ahead and mention that first, and I want to uh, pivot the conversation back to Abraham's response juxtaposed to the readings, but go on, please.
10: Okay, good, so we'll try to cover those two things. Um, it says here in this passage in Mark that um, the, Jesus left the synagogue and went to Peter's house. First mm-hmm. of all, Being in the Holy Land so many times, they've been in Capernaum. You know that the that the synagogue is one-minute walk to Peter's house you'd mm. walk out the door of the synagogue and you walk right into Peter's house so it's it's fun to read a passage like this when you know the geography when you've been there mm. you've done it so many times and uh, Peter had a nice house he was a businessman he was no slouch and um, if you have the house, his house is located between the synagogue and the harbor so oh, wow. if you go out one door of Peter's house you're gonna go right into the synagogue and if you go out the other door you're right out to the harbor where all the business. Business. So this is like living next door to the governor. Peter was no fool. He was a good businessman, and mm. he had a nice piece of property there, real estate, that uh, was prime uh, prime location. But anyway, it says that he healed his mother-in-law, and that word's only used in two different cases in the Bible of Peter's mother-in-law, but it also says that, that their mother is going to uh, be opposed to her daughter and no her right. mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. Those are the two times it's used in the Bible. But it doesn't tell us her name, and it doesn't say much about her other than she's there. And what happens probably is her husband died, Mm -hmm. Peter's father. Andrew and Peter live together in one house. John and James live together in another house with their father, Zebedee. So peter in his great um you know this is the way extended families did when the when the husband dies he brings the mother-in-law his wife's mother to live with them right this is what this is how it's supposed to be you know this is the way families are supposed
2: to work this is how the the covenant works
10: right and that's why she's living there and she on the other hand served them she liked to cook for them and do things for them so she's part of the family now Mm -hmm. and uh, interestingly enough there is a passage in in Saint Clement of Alexandria he lived he died in 215 so he's very early and it's recorded in Eusebius's the first history of the church ever written 325 mm-hmm. and it says that during that during the time of persecutions they had arrested Peter and his wife they say this is his words they say indeed that the blessed Peter when he beheld his wife being led away to death rejoiced because of her calling and her return home to heaven and called out to her as she's going to martyrdom very encouragingly and comfortingly addressed her by name and said oh thou remember the Lord Mm -hmm. such was the marriage of the blessed and perfect disposition of those dearest to them so he calls out to his wife by name it doesn't put her name here but he just said oh thou remember the Lord well what what would you remember yes he she he healed my mother in, and and he, uh, he lived with us. Jesus lived with Peter and his wife and mother-in-law for 3 years. Mm. That was his headquarters. Right. So she would of course she would remember how Jesus ate, she'd remember how he snored. She would remember the Lord in ways we can never remember him. Mm-hmm. But that that's interesting. Now, there's also another um writings and and acknowledging that he had a daughter named Petronilla. And some argue that it was only a spiritual daughter in the sense of a conversion, but she's an early saint, she is in the Roman martyrology, and there is a chapel to her and a picture of her being buried in St. Peter's Basilica. If you go in the front nave and you go up to the transepts, the one on the right-hand side is where you have confessionals. If you go past the confessionals, there is the chapel to Petronella, who is Peter's daughter. Mm. So there's a little, when you read that passage about mother-in-law, it's good to stop and say, well, what do we know? Is there anything we know That's about her? Right. And also we know that the apostles, uh, Peter, took his wife with him when he traveled. Because in 1 um, Corinthians, Paul says, do not I also. I don't charge you, Corinthians, anything. I do everything for free, but I have the right I have the right to bring a wife, like the others do. That's right, Peter and Philip. Like they does, take yes. their wives with them. Yeah, but they don't get mentioned. But it says right there that they took their wives with them on their missions. So, so you, it's kind of fun to take a passage like that and just zoom in on that one line, mother-in-law, and, and dig down a little bit. It brings a lot of interesting history.
2: <laughs> right, right, it does. Now, uh, just drawing back to the theme of everything we've been talking about, then uh, it's clear Peter, his bride, his daughter. Uh, and and all of the apostles, when when one is called by the Lord, it's very clear that sacrifice is involved. Now you can wheel and deal with God the way Jacob did, but no matter, as Doctor Hahn is fond of saying, those who try their hardest to thwart the will of God inadvertently wind up bringing it about, anyways.
10: Yep, and here we. And, and one of the things you wanted to talk about was another call that Abraham had, which was really a devastating call. Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. See, right, there's right. those words again. Here I am, Lord. It's That's the response we give to him. Here, mm-hmm. I, here I am means I'm not only here in your presence, but I'm listening and ready to obey. That's right. what that phrase means. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? This boy's probably 15, 16 years old now. He's the love of your life. And he's now... Out of the blue, God says, take that son. I know he's the promise. Everything's based on him. He's going to be the one that uh, brings about the the, the inheritance of the land everything else. But I want you to go give him as a burnt offering. Now, in my book on Genesis, I deal with the whole issue of... Uh, human sacrifice so i'm not I, we don't have time to do that here i i did mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Th- there was human sacrifice where abraham came from right and right. i think god in a way is saying are you willing to are you really changed gods are you really willing to do for me what you would have done for nana mm-hmm. human sacrifice but the interesting thing here when god tells abraham to offer his son and we call it always offering his son but the jews don't they call it the, the akidah, binding which yeah. means the you're right the binding it, because he didn't offer him he was going to right but all that he did was bound him and got him ready so they call it the akita but anyway <laughs> it wasn't a, a it wasn't an obje, a, a command he it's a way it's softened. it's almost will you do this for right me?
2: Right, exactly. And Abraham willingly responds. Now, thank you, Steve. I'd love to continue conversations like this in the future. I've been talking to Steve Ray, pilgrimage leader and prolific author. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon.
1: Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. The
0: Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jengle.
6: In the fourth rule of the
8: 14 Rules for the Discernment of Spirits, St. Ignatius of Loyola describes spiritual desolation. Detailing an aspect of spiritual desolation, he writes, and as if separated from one's Creator and Lord. Father Timothy Gallagher explains this aspect. Ignatius is highlighting a fundamental characteristic of spiritual desolation. While it endures, any felt consciousness of God's loving presence is weakened or absent. And such persons feel as if they were separated from God. God is with us, despite the lack of feeling that He is with us.
6: God is with us when we feel isolated, alone, and as if no one cares. Instead of continuing to allow the spiritual desolation to isolate us, the
8: invitation is to open our hearts to communion with God's heart. What will be your prayer of communion with God today?
0: For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net.
2: I worked in pro baseball for a long time, and we play on Sundays, and it was an easy excuse. I took the easy out and just didn't go to Mass. Got caught up on that whole selfishness, that whole, you know, um, I can do it all. The times when I was struggling were the times I needed God the most. And now that uh, I've come back and accepted God, my world has completely changed. If you've been
10: away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit CatholicsComeHome.org today.
2: Welcome back to Question in the Afternoon, rounding off the second hour. When God calls us, he responds to an ancient longing within our souls for beholding his own face. And so answering that call is a painful thing because he's truly blessed us. And the greatest blessing of answering the call of God in our life is that we may behold the face of Christ. And the more we say yes, the more his face is revealed to us. And the more he reveals to us, our true selves, and the more he reveals to us that everything on earth really doesn't matter in comparison to possessing him who is the deepest longing of our souls. So he calls us, redeemed humanity, to share in his own divine life. And it is only because the Son of God truly became man that you and I, in him and through through him, can truly become children of God. Until next time, I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon.
1: Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at avemariaradio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.